Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, a high school football game, a street festival, and a kid's classroom are all settings in a new film about how coal mining shapes Appalachian culture. This is a world that we, many of us only know peripherally or we don't know at all. And I think the events get at that complexity as well. And the results of a new survey show alarming mental health trends in Appalachia's LGBTQ community. I mean, I've seen literal families packing up and moving. It's not just with kids, even though that mall was for kids. It's also with adults because they're fearful about coming out. We'll also meet a taxidermist in Yadkin County, North Carolina, who was just a teenager when she found her calling. When I was 13, I found a roadkill snake on the road and wanted to turn it into a belt. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at solarholler.com. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This is from the opening sequence of a new film called King Cole by Appalachian filmmaker Elaine McMillian Sheldon. Papa always said that every new beginning starts with an end. It's been true for us living our lives here in this place, a place of mountains and myths. King Cole is a blend of documentary and imaginative storytelling that ask us to consider the past, present, and future of coal communities in the region. It's poetic and haunting and moving and unlike anything I've ever seen. It includes scenes of coal mining operations, along with the culture of people in coal towns. And it follows two girls who are dancers and dreamers through the landscapes of coal. King Cole was screened at Sundance earlier this year. It also showed at the Big Ears Festival in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's where I spoke with Sheldon and two of her collaborators on the film. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Elaine McMillian Sheldon. I'm the director of King Cole. I grew up in West Virginia. I live in Knoxville, Tennessee right now, where I teach at the University of Tennessee School of Art and make films and raise my little boy. My name's Molly Bourne. I am a co-producer on King Cole. My name is Shota K. Talaferro, Baltimore-based musician, Professional beatboxer, vocal percussionist, uh, breath artist. Breath art plays a big part in the soundscape of King Cole. What's a breath artist? Well, we'll get to that in a bit. But first, I asked Sheldon about a particular scene in the movie that took my breath away. I love this film. I mean, it, it showed an Appalachia that I'm very familiar with. It showed the Appalachia that I know. But it also showed an Appalachia I don't know. So my first question is, how did you get that incredible coal mining footage? That was when I was making the Project Hollow in 2012 in McDowell County. And I had been trying to get access to a mine over and over and over and just kept getting shut down. Nobody wanted me to film. And that mine actually um, was one that my, I think my brother and my dad both worked at separate times. And so they were able to help me build the trust there. 
I was allowed to witness one shift, basically. We go into the mine. We see Bobby Lee, who's the miner, operating a continuous miner, which is a massive piece of machinery that he stands away from with a remote control and controls all of it while he's looking over his back, making sure the coal is going back in the right direction and not, you know, that he's not pinning someone against the wall with that type of machinery. Basically, it's just a really violent scene where the machine is just crunching into this earth and just going at it. Um, and I, th- I don't think most people know what that looks like, but it's loud, it's dusty, um, it's wet because they're spraying so much water to keep the dust down. And it's a really intense job, a really intense job. And it, it shows you how on edge miners can get. So with that, we get out of the mine and then we go into the garden with my papa, where I tell a story, which is very true, not just for my papa, but for everybody that's worked in the mines, that you just don't sneak up behind them because they've lived a life where they have been scared of getting pinned by rock or rock falling on them or whatever. And it's one of my favorite sequences because it shows both this very like aggressive experience that people have and then this gentleness um, that they occupy when they're above ground, just as human beings, like tending their gardens. And I think that juxtaposition is true for a lot of people that do that work that they often don't get, aren't seen for that, you know. Can you all talk a little bit about how you kind of initially conceived this through these scenes um, and through the journalistic aspect and, and kind of how it, how it came together to make what we saw on the screen last night? I don't know how it started, but we were both interested in these expressions of coal-related culture, these objects, these places. And I remember being aware of these for years. Like my best friend in high school had a coal miner's daughter bumper sticker on her car. We've always seen these, these emblems and these expressions of pride. But then we've also seen these events, these really, like these places where people come together in the community to talk about this this place that we don't often see. Like I have never been in a coal mine except for the exhibition coal mine where we filmed and the one in Lynch, Kentucky as well. This is a world that we many of us only know peripherally or we don't know at all. And I think the events get at that complexity as well. Like the scene in the classroom where Fred Powers is talking about his experience underground. And there's that moment where he's talking about the, the methane explosion. It's the most dangerous job in the coal mines and it pays top dollar cause you go down in a place and there's a place about as big as this room. And I was sitting towards the back of my machine. And I rumped down on it. I'm gonna go out and get me a load. And I rumped down on it and getting ready to swing out there to get me a load and boom, big methane explosion happened and come right in front of me. Man, two more seconds. And I would have been right into that thing, and I heard if a miner gets caught in a methane explosion, it'll burn all the skin off your body, eyeballs out of your socket, and most likely you're going to be body parts. Uh, I mean, there's there's some levity in the way that he is he is talking about it, but it's also really tragic. And then later in that scene, a kid asks him, do you miss being a coal miner? And he says, I, yes, I do. And it, he says it without missing a beat. And that captures that complexity, I think. The film started as us capturing these real-life moments, so as a verite documentary. And then, so we were started filming in 2019, and when COVID hit in 2020, like many film teams and like everyone else, we stopped working for a bit. And so many of the coal events that we filmed before the pandemic did not come back. So that was an interesting and I think really really special thing that we captured a lot of these moments as a living archive 
but you were really interested in bringing in your family's experience and it shifted into this what has been described as a an essay film or an experimental film a hybrid documentary and I think it needed to become that to say what we needed to say we were filming these coal scenes we went to classrooms we filmed kids doing these things with coal we filmed uh the coal dust run where they throw fake coal dust on people it's like a baptism sort of scene where they throw in fake sprinkling of scene it's 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 black corn starch it's not real coal dust um the football team touching this coal as they come out of the locker room hand on the coal over and over and over the dedication to miners that night it was all really exciting to film because it was real and it was so heartfelt um and it was also all very ironic. Um, and we really felt like it was lacking the context of understanding the psychology. And psychology is impossible to show. The psyche is an impossible thing to show. So we had to think of other ways, cinematic techniques, dreamscapes, other things to take us into that realm that would make this more universal and not an oddity, not a look gawking at Appalachia and all the stupid things that Appalachians do, which is like the harsh way people look at it, right? Like that's not my words. That's literally some of the feedback we were getting. There was a moment where I think we just were like, this is not achieving the dignity that we want to achieve. And so figuring out the art form that would do that was important. We've talked about the documentary side, but there's these these other scenes just showing the beauty of the region. People called it the dreamy part last night or the part with the girls. Can you kind of like tell us what folks are talking about when they say that? Yeah. So there's coal-related cultural scenes that are Real scenes, we did not orchestrate any of them. And then there's two girls that we cast at local dance studios. Molly found them in Hurricane and Charleston. And we wanted the film, once we realized it needed that sort of ushering the audience into this psyche, we wanted it to be through the viewpoint of children. Children allow us an entry into an old story in a new way with humor and irony and all these things. Energy, right? Um, this new energy, new life, thinking about the future. And so we put Lainey and Gabby in scenes that were real. So coal memorials, and then we had them do homework that's very similar to the coal fair that we filmed, the actual coal fair. Some of the scenes were staged where they're dancing in front of coal piles, and that was just a, some, an image I wanted. We wanted to show that the grand epic beauty of like the scenic highway, the Highland Scenic Highway, which is like empty, it was spruce, it's amazing. But we also wanted to show the grittiness of the, the industrial side and, and show this life right in front of it and dancing. So yeah, but the most important thing was that the girls then became a catalyst for thinking about the future. And so it's not like a, we're not, you know, recommending a replacement economy if we do this and do this, but it's more of just getting people to remember that imagination and thinking about the future with creativity and imagination is kind of our only hope. There's a line about millions of tons of coal leave these hills. We stay here. And it seems like this film is in a lot of ways about what happens to the people who have been part of this culture as the actual industry fades. Is, it, does that seem like an accurate, like a fair read? Yeah. I mean, I think the film's also trying to make the point that oftentimes the things we value, the things that have monetary value, aren't the most valuable things locally to where they're produced, right? And so the coal that's left and left and left and left you know, in our, the state of West Virginia struggles to keep schools open and roads paved. I, I think that 
the people at the center of it and their resilience has always been what's interesting to both of us and their dignity, right? And their choice to stay and how hard, how difficult that's been. And usually they're depicted as not having choice. And so I think we wanted to show people as actually making a choice to stay. Um, when the line of like millions of tons of coal leaves these hills, we stay here. It was a defiant line, but it's followed up. It's a bittersweet line because it's followed up with the falling of the Mingo Oak, which is the place we went to have sanctuary on Sunday. And the Mingo Oak was the world's white, largest white oak, and it suffocated from a coal-burning waste pile nearby. And so that was, for me, was like any time the film started to feel romantic or um, like sort of like too happy in some ways, I would pull it back to some reality, because I do think that's truer to our lives. They have been bittersweet. On the Sabbath, we sit in the shade of the Mingo Oak, world's largest white oak. At 577 years old, she stands 145 feet tall, 25 feet around. Her limbs spread 96 feet wide. But this spring, her bare branches don't bud. The king's men say that a fungus killed her. People who gather on her dying day know otherwise. She suffocated from the fumes of a burning coal waste pile. As the Mingo Oak hits the ground, the king's song gets louder. The beating of the drum, coal, coal. music in the world. So the film not only looks stunning, but it's amazing to listen to as well. How did you start working with Shodake? The sound team is made of all stars, including Shodake. And the first person to mention on the sound team is Billy Wereznik, who recorded all those lush sounds you hear. And then last year at Big Ears in Knoxville, where I live, Shodake came to perform. And he's beyond a breath artist. He does all kinds of vocal percussion and beatboxing and had a full performance. And I just almost fell off my seat because I didn't even know what he was doing with his mouth to make these sounds that sounded like nature and sounded like life and death and all these things, all the themes of the film. And I just was blown away. And so I met him and walked right up to him after his his thing and got his card. And um, I followed up with him, not really knowing what we needed to do. And we had conversations and he came to West Virginia um, and we did a whole recording. So I just think that I didn't know what he did was even a thing. But when I heard it, I knew the film couldn't live without it. So when Elaine laid out the film to you, what did you think? Well, piggybacking off what you said about I didn't know that what he does as a thing. I don't know. I still don't know. I'm trying to figure out um, how this can be a thing or is it a thing. And um, I had just completed working a commission at the National Aquarium. 
and I approached that specifically through the lens of being a breath artist and and not a beatboxer. And so it was the per it was the next perfect project for me. Yeah, I know you recorded in the Monongahela National Forest. So what was that like? Can you kind of paint us a picture of what that scene was like when you recorded your, your set? The part of Monongahela Forest that we were in doesn't look real. It looks like a movie set. Sonically, uh, the space was very still that day. I was just trying to call out to the space uh, and call out to the vision. Elaine said, okay, so you're you're the mountains, you're the coal, you're you're the earth. All of these things that are go way beyond just me, little old me. Would you mind explaining a little about what breathwork is for people who don't know it and maybe maybe like a short demo? Right, okay. So uh basically uh I define breath art as uh a, a medium of vocal expression uh that can exist in an isolated form and serve as its own medium, uh, genre, practice, body of research, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Some of the sounds that I provided for the film um, for musical composition purposes uh, are as follows. Um, wait, did I, did you use ocean waves in the movie? And that sounds like this. And then there are a lot of sounds uh, where it's clearly identified as human breath. So inhalations and gasps. So wind sounds like this. And then, uh, oh yeah, this is another standout uh, method or technique. Um, I call it overtone breath. And there's a warbling effect that sits at the center of the vocal technique and uh, sound experience of it. It sounds like this. Yeah, and then maybe one more, um, uh, a breath interpretation of crickets off in the distance. So those are a few. Uh, I went through like 20 different sounds. Well, Elaine, Molly, Shodake, thank you all so much for speaking with me on Inside Appalachia. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you. That was Shodake Talaferro, Molly Bourne, and Elaine McMillian Sheldon speaking about the film King Cole. King Cole is screening in select cities around the country. The filmmakers expect a wider release this summer. 
For more information, check our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, we hear about the concerning results of a national survey of the LGBTQ community and what it means for young Appalachians. Queer students or queer folks in general have a lot of extra added stress because their identities are politicized. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. The Trevor Project is a nonprofit organization that focuses on suicide prevention among LGBTQ youth. In May, the project released the results of a survey about mental health and the LGBTQ community. It revealed some concerning numbers. Chris Schultz brings us this story. A warning for listeners, it contains discussions of self-harm and suicide. It's about five and a half minutes long. For the past five years, the Trevor Project's annual survey on the mental health of LGBTQ young people has asked respondents aged 13 to 24 from across the United States about their experiences in the past year. This year's results from more than 28,000 respondents raise concerns about child and student mental health. 41% of LGBTQ young people surveyed seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year, and young people who are transgender, non-binary, and or people of color reported higher rates than their peers. Janice Shaw is a licensed psychologist. She is also the Assistance and Training Director at the Carruth Center for Counseling and Psychological Services at West Virginia University. She says that LGBTQ youth are dealing with additional stressors from a young age. Queer students or queer folks in general have a lot of extra added stress because their identities are politicized. So they have higher levels of anxiety, higher levels of depression, higher levels of attempted suicide than, you know, the cisgender or heterosexual population. Shaw says one benefit she's seen is that younger generations are more open to conversations about mental health, but stigma still persists. One of the survey's findings was that even though 81% of respondents wanted mental health care, only 44% were able to access it. Shaw recognizes that many of the issues impacting LGBTQ people are systemic and can't be resolved in a therapy session. But the survey also found that small changes, like living and going to school in gender-affirming environments, significantly reduce the risk of suicide. I think, like, broadly, like, respecting people's wishes and decisions, I just think there's a lot of bigger societal pieces threatening the existence of trans and non-binary folks of, like, you don't exist kind of thing. Like, this isn't real, and that's not true. Ash Orr works as a press relations manager for a national LGBTQ nonprofit. Locally, he is a board member for Project Rainbow, an organization working to provide housing support for displaced LGBTQ community members. He said that housing instability can exacerbate mental health issues. Here in West Virginia, we have the highest amount of trans individuals per capita anywhere else in the country. And 
housing is already such a sensitive issue. It's stressful to navigate as, as a queer and trans person. You have to think about, is this landlord safe? Are the individuals that I may be neighbors to, are they safe? The Trevor Project survey found that less than half of LGBTQ youth, 40%, found their home to be LGBTQ affirming. The survey also found that transgender people are much more likely to consider suicide. More than half of all trans men surveyed considered suicide in the past year, double the rate of cis men surveyed, cis meaning identifying with their assigned gender at birth. We do see a lot of younger individuals seeking housing assistance and discrimination assistance. These issues, again, are systemic, but they also intersect with one another. And that's why we really do need a whole system over uh, overhaul when it comes to how we are looking at mental health access, uh, mental health providers and services, as well as unsheltered services and resources. Megan Gandy is an associate professor and behavioral social work program director at WVU. She says that for things to improve for LGBTQ youth, it will take everyone working together. I think the thing that really struck me the most is the fact that it, it takes a community for LGBTQ plus folks to be well. Legislation matters, school matters, families matter, faith communities matter. All of these things matter to make youth mental health better. Gandy says she's already seen the impact of restrictive laws, such as House Bill 2007, which the West Virginia legislature made law earlier this year and significantly limits access to gender-affirming care for anyone under the age of 18. I mean, I've seen literal families packing up and moving. It's not just with kids, even though that law was for kids. It's also with adults because they're fearful about coming out. And they're fearful about the repercussions that um, they might face. And they're also trying to plan for the inevitable. They might limit adult access to gender-affirming care. So. For the first time this year, the Trevor Project survey asked respondents to describe a world where all LGBTQ people are accepted. Key phrases that popped up repeatedly included things like people just exist and basic human rights. Gandhi says she does see a path forward for those who want to support LGBTQ children and youth. Youth need caring, supportive adults. It doesn't matter if they're heterosexual and cisgender or if they're LGBTQ plus. Um, they just need caring and supportive adults. And one of the simplest ways that we can show that LGBTQ plus youth matter is visibility uh, because it is, it can be an invisible minority status. Uh, we can show visibility, visible support through rainbow flags, uh, the trans flag. Those really do actually mean a lot when kids see that. And it just automatically communicates to them that you're a safe person. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. Floods are a yearly occurrence throughout Appalachia, but the ones that hit eastern Kentucky last year were especially devastating. Over the past year, we've shared stories about those floods, not just the disaster itself, but its aftermath and the recovery. Gwen Christian runs one of the few grocery stores in Letcher County. Last year, it was destroyed in the flood. WFPL's Ryan Van Velzer brings us this from the IGA and ISOM, which reopened this spring. I'm Gwendolyn Christian, and I'm from the ISOM IGA in ISOM, Kentucky. It's July the 29th, we were flooded. We ended up with six feet, three inches of water, mud water, in our store. It completely devastated everything in our store. 
the health department did condemn everything. So we actually had to have a disaster cleaning service to come in and actually completely clear the store for us. IGA Inc. is out of, out of Chicago, Illinois, and the president is Mr. Ross. He actually started a GoFundMe, and we had people from all over the country, all over the United States, all over the world who made small donations. Some of them was $5, some of them was $10. I was talking to a gentleman this morning, and he was just asking about the store the first time he'd been in, and I was just telling him how God had provided uh, just people to come in from all over the country to help us. If you go south, you have a grocery store 15 miles away, but if you go north, it's 25 miles away. So you had people who were having to drive a 45-minute drive just to get a loaf of bread, a gallon of milk, or anything like that. We opened again on April 1, and business has been great. We've, we've increased our volume from whenever it actually shut down in July. We uh, have added Hunt's Brother Pizza, which is doing very, very well in our store. We have a smoker. Smoker's going right now. We're smoking some pork chops and some ribs at this time. We had 25 employees when we were flooded. All 25 of those employees I was able to continue to keep employed. They came back to work um, full force on April 1, and then we have added about eight additional employees. I think the flood recovery has gone well. I think uh, most of the community has decided that they're going to stay. You know, everyone was really afraid it was going to be a flight out of uh, Letcher County there for a while. I think it's a lot of emotional problems though that's probably been left from the flood because we had a kind of a rainstorm not too long ago and the teachers were coming in and saying the, the kids kind of panicked, afraid that they, you know, their mom and dad may be at home that's getting flooded again. We're a very uh, tight community, very caring community and uh, we just want to be here to provide for each other. And all of these photos that you see here, it is a gentleman by the name of Malcolm Wilson. He took our photo, he took the photo of the flag. He, this is a lady who shopped with us ever since the store opened in 1973. She has passed away and her name is Miss Hope Campbell. And then that is a local farmer there as well. His name is Doc Frazier. And that right there, his name is Leroy Sexton, one of the most famous banjo pickers in the United States. This is my family, this is my community, and this is my people. TikTok sensation Philip Bowen began playing fiddle at the age of four. Growing up in the little town of Montgomery, West Virginia, that early introduction to music became a lifelong passion. But it wasn't an occupation. Music was just a hobby, something Bowen did on the side. Until COVID-19 kept him at home and he got a TikTok account. His talent and skills earned him over a million followers and helped him win $25,000 through TikTok's Game's Greatest Talent competition. His online success led to real-world gigs, a new career in music, and an appearance on Mountain Stage. In the latest episode of Us and Them, 
host Trey Kay spoke with Bowen about his hometown and how it shaped his music. I was four when I started playing the violin slash fiddle. And I was watching an episode of Sesame Street, and there is this very famous classical violinist named Itzhak Perlman, and he was on there. And I, be, as, a, as a four or five-year-old would tend to do, I got obsessed with this particular episode of Sesame Street. My older sister, Laura, is two years older than me, and she was already playing piano. And my mom wanted me to, just, oh, you should try to learn an instrument. So I became obsessed with learning the violin. As he got older, there was a tension between music and other activities. Sometimes he wanted to go outside and play with his friends or shoot hoops. But before his mom would let him leave the house, Philip had to practice violin for an hour. By high school, he was playing classics by Bach and beginning to be influenced by other forms of music. I love classical music, but in a different way than I love Americana and bluegrass and stuff is that it's like if you go listen to a recording of the Bach double, most of them are going to sound the same because they're playing Bach, you know, and it's there's no there's not a lot of room in classical for improvisation in the way that I do it. So sometimes it would feel like restrictive to me and I'd be like, I just want to go have some fun. Well, I remember one specific instance I was supposed to be learning. This is like later, like like later high school. I was supposed to be learning the Bach double. Now, this is actually the Netherlands Bach Society performing, not Philip. It's a very, uh, very famous violin duet. I was supposed to be doing this with somebody in the youth orchestra for like a chamber music thing. We we're supposed to be learning this Bach double concerto. And I remember I was supposed to be learning the second violin part and I played it like a million times. So even though I loved playing that with a friend, I was like, okay, I can't hear this anymore. But sometimes I would get in trouble and I would turn my like radio on or a CD on. And I'd be like, oh cool, I bet, I bet, I bet the fiddle would sound cool with the Temptations. It starts out I got sunshine on a cloudy day. And I go, on a cloudy day with the fiddle, you know, when it's cold outside. I got the month of May. And then you can do a little lick here. I guess, you know, you say. And then when you have those kind of like spaces with long notes, you can really just lean into it on the fiddle and, you know, give it some color, put some stank on it, whatever you want to say, like mess around and give those kind of little bluesy licks and stuff like that. And then I'd hear my mom coming up the stairs. Is that in the recital? Are you supposed to be, <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, but it sounds so, it sounds cool though, right? You know, so I would drive her crazy with that. That willingness to experiment, to test musical limits, led to new places. And it all began by listening to the radio and challenging himself to fiddle a version of a pop song or a soul song. Bowen's debut record is due out early summer. That excerpt is from the latest Us and Them podcast episode. A fiddler contemplates the fate of the mountain state. You can stream the full episode at wvpublic.org or find it wherever you get podcasts. Us and Them is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation. 
If your allergies are making you miserable this spring, you're not alone. Caroline McGregor talked to a West Virginia allergy specialist who confirms this year is a particularly tough one for seasonal allergy sufferers. Itchy, watery eyes, sneezing, throat clearing, a runny nose, those pesky symptoms of allergies that for many have become an annual rite of spring. But this year in West Virginia, doctors confirm more people are reporting symptoms and earlier than usual. Dr. James Clark specializes in allergy and immunology for the Charleston Area Medical Center Health System. He said he's treated new patients experiencing allergies for the first time. He said shifting weather patterns and the early arrival of tree pollen are contributing to this year's higher numbers. What really causes spring pollen allergy is tree pollen, and we have a lot of trees here. Clark said the arrival of the spring season dictates when trees begin to bloom and pollen counts rise. This year, we seem to have right around March, earlier March, that it got warm and kind of got everything going, and then we had that cold spell, if you remember. So that kind of shut everything down and and put some of these trees in a holding pattern. Pollen counts usually vary by time of day, the season, and weather conditions. As temperatures fluctuate, the constant cooling and warming effect causes a higher release of pollen and mold spores. So that kind of shut everything down and, and put some of these trees in a holding pattern. Now that that's gone and it's really started to warm up, those trees that were kind of in the holding pattern have now really gone ahead and, and really bloomed out. So that's what's probably leading to this somewhat delayed, intense spring tree pollen season. This roller coaster weather pattern has created conditions that are giving rise to much higher counts of pollen in the air. A warmer-than-normal January, followed by a cold spell, and just a few weeks ago, warmer temperatures with high winds have aggravated the situation. Clark said on rainy or windless days, tree pollen does not circulate as easily. The pollen counts are high in the morning and sort of drop off in the afternoon and evening, but it's that warm, breezy day that really will uh, fuel the high pollen counts. It really gets a lot of pollen in the air. The reason pollen or other allergens like mold affect people so badly is their own immune system where allergic reactions begin. When a harmless substance like dust, mold or pollen is encountered by someone who is allergic to that substance, their immune system can go into overdrive, producing antibodies that attack the allergen. You know, oh, part of the problem with allergies is this just this mucus is produced. And, and the same with asthma, too. And the mucus, the more viscous or thick it becomes, the more uh, difficult it is to clear. And that can lead to bronchitis and can lead to sinusitis if you're not clearing those things out of the lungs or the sinuses. For nasal congestion, Clark said it's best treated by nasal sprays. Those help. The classic allergy symptoms are the sneezing, the itching, the clear, watery, runny nose. That is best treated by antihistamines like uh, the 24-hour antihistamines now, which used to be prescription, and they're over-the-counter, like Claritin, Zyrtec, Allegra, another one called Zizel. Those are really good 24-hour antihistamines to help blunt that uh, histamine response, which is itching, sneezing, runny nose. If tree pollen is your main trigger, your symptoms might drop off by the end of May, but Clark said most people suffer from multiple pollen allergies. While tree pollen season lasts from March through May, grass pollen season begins in April and lasts through July. It's going to be going pretty heavy until really the heat of the summer when the grass pollen kind of drops off when everything gets you know, really dry and dormant. Come August, the weed pollens will really kick in and start going. So while midsummer may offer some reprieve for allergy sufferers, the fall offers its own variety of allergens. Clark said tests can pinpoint the exact cause of specific allergies, making it easier to treat or avoid those triggers. So it isn't very helpful to find out if you're allergic. A lot of people come in and they, they, uh, they come in with the mantra, I'm allergic to everything. 
when in fact, once we do the testing, they're not allergic to anything. It's not allergies. It's one of the more common things that I see that looks, looks like allergy and mimics allergy is chronic uh, sinusitis. Chronic sinusitis requires a different treatment than allergies, which some people can grow out of with the help of shots that help modify the disease process over time. Clark said today's advancements in medicine offer more options for allergy sufferers. It's important to find out, are you allergic? Is it an allergic problem or is it a non-allergic problem? And if it is an allergic problem, what are you allergic to and what can we do to modify your environment that might help that? Maybe you had a history of allergies and things have gotten worse there. Things have changed a lot in what we do these days, so it may not be a bad idea to be reevaluated. Biologics, or monoclonal antibodies, are one of the latest treatments for nasal polyps, asthma, eczema, and allergies. Derived from living organisms, they offer the high potency of anti-inflammatory steroids like prednisone, but with fewer side effects. Considered a precision medicine, they avoid what Clark calls the collateral damage by attacking one specific pathway rather than multiple pathways. It's very precise. It's almost like a scalpel versus a howitzer. And so you get the desired effect from the medicine without a lot of undesirable effects. Clark said overall health and nutrition, along with drinking enough water, is important for allergy sufferers. Staying well hydrated is extremely important. And people with certain conditions like asthma or allergies or other things, they tend to have a lot of insensitive loss of water. You know, their mouth breathing a lot. So they're losing a lot of moisture through their breathing. People with allergies, you know, can get more dehydrated and not even know it. Staying well hydrated is extremely important. And overall, keeping yourself well. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor in Charleston. A lot of people are fascinated by the results of taxidermy, whether it's display at a park visitor center or a big buck on a friend's wall. But we tend to be a little more uncomfortable with the process that goes into making these animal mounts. The preservation and mounting of dead animals has been around since at least the Middle Ages, but it didn't really become popular until the 1800s when hunters began bringing trophies to upholstery shops. Margaret McLeod Leaf has the story of one expert practitioner in Yadkin County, North Carolina. I feel a little apprehensive as I walk up to Amy Ritchie's workshop in Hamptonville, North Carolina, especially after hearing the message on her voicemail. Hi, you've reached Amy's Animal Art. I'm sorry you've missed me. I'm probably skinning a bobcat or sewing up the neck of a giraffe. Please leave me a message. I'll call you back as soon as I can stop and pull off the rubber gloves. Amy is an award-winning taxidermist. Her studio is located in her four-bay garage. It's large, bright, and airy, with about 150 deer antlers hanging from the high ceilings. Everything is neatly organized. On one side, power tools hang on a wall next to shelves filled with paints and adhesives. Over here is the giraffe corner. This, uh... The other side of the studio is a veritable zoo. A few giraffes, lions, armadillos, bears, coyotes, suspended in motion. They seem so vital, I can't help but reach out and touch them. They feel soft and real. I'm really passionate about taxidermy. I think at my core, I just love it. It's what I was meant to do. Amy grew up in rural North Carolina, homeschooled by her mom. She says that gave her plenty of time to follow her interests. That included animals, particularly dead ones. I started when I was 13. I found a roadkill snake on the road and wanted to turn it into a belt. It was a king snake with a white chain pattern. 
I asked mom if I could have a knife from the kitchen to skin the snake, and she said, just please wear gloves so you don't get a disease. <laughs> Amy taught herself how to skin and tan it. I was able to find the information online, how to use glycerin and some different products from just the pharmacy to be able to tan that. And, and there I was, snakeskin belt. Amy admits she was an unusual child with unusual interests. I like being unique. I mean, why be like everyone else? And I never have been. <laughs> she says her dad also supported her interest in taxidermy. He had a second job delivering newspapers early in the morning. And he would find all the fresh roadkills. So that's how he would bring home raccoons and possums and things for me to practice skinning. When she was 16, Amy says her dad encouraged her to enter a national taxidermy competition. Her entry was a red squirrel mounted on a bed of leaves as if it was sleeping. Amy competed in the open division. And even though she was a novice, she walked away with third place. She's gone on to win many awards over the years. Now at 36... She's a highly skilled taxidermist in demand. She makes her living mounting animals for hunters and collectors. We got some, the actual messy stuff going on. This is a wild boar um, someone brought in. The bones and bulk of the meat have already been removed. Amy starts by preparing and tanning the hide. She grabs a knife. We have to take this, um, this meat off, and so I'll hold the knife and work it down like this. It's fascinating and kind of satisfying to slowly shave this off. Amy is small, just over five feet tall. She wraps the exposed hide tightly on the edge of her workbench and scrapes the knife along the boar's hide in rhythmic motion. At this stage, the hide is stiff and unwieldy. It's hard. I can't even fold the hide. By the time I'm done, it'll be soft, and it will not take up as much space in my freezer. The freezer. A part of this tour that I've been most curious about. Amy has seven chest freezers. She opens a freezer lid, and I pull out one of about 50 gallon-sized Ziploc bags. Inside is something called a deer cape. Yeah. These are so compact, it's like a, a, a roast. Yeah, it's just the skin, and it's the head and shoulders of the deer, and wrapped up really tight. After Amy treats the hide, she crafts the animal's shape. She carves muscles, veins, and bone mass out of a foam mold, like a sculptor. She sands the mold, applies adhesives, and wraps the skin around it. Then she smooths out irregularities before sewing it up with artfully hidden stitches. She uses glass eyes. You gotta detail the eyes so that they look realistic, so they have expression. And um, th those are those uh, things that separate, you know, just a uh, hide assembler from an artistic taxidermist. Amy says when she was starting out, she didn't know many other women in the field. But she says that's changed in the past few years. And she's helping train a new generation through her Facebook page and YouTube channel. Hey folks, today we're gonna do a repair video. And this is gonna be involving a very common problem that I see with more deer capes. And now, through an apprenticeship. Amy is helping her first apprentice, Mariah Petrie, carve a foam mold. They'll sand and apply adhesives before pulling a deer cape onto the form. Mariah started out as a customer she came into Amy's workshop a few years ago to drop off a deer to be mounted, and the two hit it off. 
Mariah says she was a little uneasy with the work at first. Being an animal person myself, I was like, oh, my heart's going to get in the way. Will I be able to clean this cat? Um, Because it looks like my pet cat in a way, just a little bit bigger. Um, And you get to uh, come to terms with things. After you do it once, it's it's just a motion you go through. Now she works part-time with Amy and hopes to start her own taxidermy business. She says her favorite part is breathing life into her subjects. I think it has been amazing how you can make a piece of foam with some clay look realistic. That is the start of everything, just taking something that looks lifeless and making it look realistic when you saw it out in the woods or a picture. Like Mariah, most of Amy's clients are hunters who bring in deer trophies or bobcats. Amy says she rarely hunts, though she doesn't have a problem with it as long as the animals are legally obtained. I'm here in the South where really, if you haven't seen a deer head or know what taxidermy is, you know, how, how are you even a Southerner? But Amy's most prized mounts are from a trip she made to Africa. They include the head and neck of an adult giraffe looming over 10 feet tall in her studio. Hunting giraffes is controversial. Amy says this animal was an older male that was beyond breeding age and had been attacking younger giraffes. She also has a mother and baby giraffe that were donated by a zoo after they died of natural causes. Amy enjoys sharing her collection, especially with kids. They just come in here and they're like, wow, mom and dad, what's that? What's that? And it really gets you more up close than you would even in most zoos. And, you know, how many kids get to pet a baby giraffe? Amy says she's constantly looking for new ways to expand her craft. More active poses, more detailed scenery. She says part of the pleasure for her is the transformation. Like when she turned that snakeskin she found on the side of the road into an eye-catching belt. I think uh, the the fascination with just thinking, wow, that would have just been thrown away and I have done something with something that would have rotted. And and maybe that's why I like taxidermy so much, the idea that you can make something from nothing. For Amy, it's more than just preserving animals. She enjoys sharing this art form, whether it's with her clients or with people who just stop by to marvel at her studio. For Inside Appalachia, This is Margaret McLeod-Leaf in Yadkin County, North Carolina. That story is part of our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To hear it again, or any of our other 130-plus Folkways stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Tim Bing, John Blissard, Eric Vincent Huey, and Little Sparrow. Bill Lynch is our producer. Sander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. 
You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.